Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. At the Mississippi State Penitentiary, also known as Parchman, a former deputy warden pleaded guilty to violating an inmate's civil rights in August 2016. Deputy Warden Melvin Hilson, age 49, was charged with violating the inmate's civil rights by repeatedly striking him and knocking him to the ground, resulting in the inmate suffering a ruptured eardrum, abrasions to his ear and neck, and prolonged headaches. Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark for the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division and U.S. Attorney Clay Joyner of the Northern District of Mississippi made this announcement. This defendant is being held accountable for violating his duty as a corrections officer by unlawfully assaulting an inmate under his custody. This former Parchman deputy warden caused severe injury to the victim and his actions violated the trust that we place in corrections officials to lawfully carry out their duties. The Civil Rights Division will continue to hold law enforcement officials accountable when they use force without basis and violate people's civil rights inside our jails and prisons. According to court documents and statements made during the hearing, Hilson was working as a member of Parchman's K-9 unit at the time of the assault. JT was in a caged area where he was waiting to be seen by a medical provider. Hilson approached JT and struck him with a closed fist several times, knowing that there was no reason to use force and that JT did not pose any threat to himself or others. During the assault, Hilson knocked JT to the ground, picked him up, and then struck him and knocked him to the ground again. According to prosecutors, JT did not attempt to fight back or defend himself. A federal grand jury indicted Hilson in June 2021 on three separate counts, including writing a false report to conceal the assault and lying to Mississippi Department of Corrections investigators about the assault. The obstruction charges will be dismissed at the conclusion of sentencing. Hilson is scheduled to be sentenced on September 1st, 2022. In a few weeks, tens of thousands of people in Missouri prisons will stop receiving letters and photos in the mail. Like other states, Missouri will soon prohibit inmates in prison statewide from receiving most physical mail. Instead, the state will pay a private Texas-based company to scan inmates' mail and send them digital copies. State corrections officials say the move is necessary to stem the flow of drugs and other contraband into prisons, but criminal justice reform advocates warn it could violate inmates' privacy and further isolate them from their families. Beginning July 1st, anyone who wishes to send personal mail to an inmate in Missouri must mail it to a centralized processing facility in Tampa owned by Securus Technologies, where workers will make a digital copy. Inmates will be able to view their mail on electronic tablets, which they receive at no cost from the company when they first enter prison. Inmates who don't have access to a tablet will receive free paper photocopies of their personal mail. Missouri prisons will continue to accept certain types of postal mail, including legal correspondence from attorneys, visitation applications, and mail from state agencies. New Mexico, Florida, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania also have banned personal mail in prisons, citing concerns over drug smuggling. However, an investigation from the Texas Tribune and the Marshall Project last year 
found the flow of contraband into Texas prisons remained largely unchanged despite statewide mail restrictions. David Price, 58, an inmate serving a life sentence in the state of Alabama, was found unresponsive in his cell on Tuesday. After correctional staff rushed Price to the medical healthcare unit at Bibb Correctional Facility, medical staff attempted life-saving measures but were unsuccessful, and he was pronounced deceased. The precise cause of Price's death is unknown, pending the results of a full autopsy, with the ADOC Law Enforcement Services Division investigating the incident, according to ADOC. Last week, another inmate serving a life sentence was found unresponsive in an Alabama correctional facility. William Thierry, 46, was serving a life sentence in Easterling Correctional Facility. Thierry's death is also under investigation. Price is the third death in Bibb Correctional Facility in the last two months. Both Price and Thierry were denied parole last year, according to records from the Alabama Department of Pardons and Paroles, with each man's next parole hearing having been scheduled for 2026. U.S. Department of Justice, in their ongoing lawsuit filed against the state of Alabama, alleged that ADOC is unable to control the flow of contraband and drugs in Alabama prisons, with the result being a higher amount of overdose deaths. The report also called into question ADOC's accuracy in reporting drug overdose deaths, with some being mistakenly designated deaths by natural causes. At Stafford Creek Correction Center near Aberdeen, Washington, more than a quarter of prisoners and dozens of staff have tested positive for COVID in the last month. In all, 568 inmates and 41 staff at Stafford Creek have tested positive. The next biggest outbreak in Washington is at the Monroe Correctional Complex with 28 inmates and 33 staff. Inmates say that the prison administration should have done more to keep the outbreak from spreading Lawrence Jenkins, a Stafford Creek inmate, stated that even after several people had tested positive, units with and without COVID cases had to mingle in outdoor hallways waiting for food and medicine. Jenkins said, It immediately alarmed me. If there's positive cases, why are they moving us around, herding us around like this, packing us in these lines to go into the chow hall, to go into the medicine line? A Department of Corrections spokesperson confirmed in an email the accuracy of Jenkins' account, but said, Given that transmission of COVID outdoors is minimal, there were no COVID cases that were attributed to the brief interactions that occurred. Prison officials have been offering inmates with pre-existing conditions a choice. They can go to solitary confinement, known as the whole, or they can agree to sign a waiver holding prison officials harmless if they get COVID or long-haul COVID or even if they die. The waiver adds that the prison can't guarantee those in solitary won't get COVID. Jenkins wasn't one of those asked to sign the waiver, but he obtained a copy from a fellow inmate and read it over the phone. I refuse this treatment or procedure, individual single-cell COVID-19 quarantine during an outbreak in my living unit, he read. Jenkins said the form then enumerates all of the dangers of COVID, lung damage, ongoing brain fog and fatigue, even death. Jenkins said inmates weren't offered legal representation before being asked to sign these waivers. Incarcerated workers in the U.S. produce at least $11 billion in goods and services annually, but receive just pennies an hour in wages for their prison jobs, according to a new report from the American Civil Liberties Union, or the ACLU. Nearly two-thirds of all prisoners in the U.S., which imprisons more of its population than any other country in the world, 
have jobs in state and federal prisons. That figure amounts to roughly 800,000 people, researchers estimated in the report, which is based on extensive public records requests, questionnaires, and interviews with incarcerated workers. ACLU researchers say the findings outlined in Wednesday's report raise concerns about the systemic exploitation of prisoners who are compelled to work sometimes difficult and dangerous jobs without basic labor protections and little or no training while making close to nothing. Most incarcerated workers are tasked with general prison maintenance that is crucial to keep the facilities running, according to the ACLU researchers, who worked with the University of Chicago Law School's Global Human Rights Clinic. Quote, State governments in the prison system are extracting tremendous value from a captive and exploited workforce, all while claiming they can't afford to pay them a livable wage, end quote, said Jennifer Turner, the principal author of the report. More than 80% of incarcerated laborers do general prison maintenance, including cleaning, cooking, repair work, laundry, and other essential services. For paid non-industry jobs, workers make an average of 13 cents to 52 cents an hour, according to the report. Seven states, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Texas, pay nothing for the vast majority of prison work. We're joined today by Jared Shanahan, a writer, activist, and professor of criminal justice based in Chicago. Shanahan has been on previous episodes discussing mass incarceration and the George Floyd Rebellion. We're speaking today about his new book, Captives, How Rikers Island Took New York City Hostage. Captives recounts the last 70 years of New York politics from the perspective of the city's jails. Shanahan's research began when he himself was awaiting a sentence he knew would land him on the island. His observations and experiences of Rikers violence during his short stint there became the foundation for this history of mass incarceration and the triumph of neoliberalism. Like C.L.R. James before him, Shanahan sees that historical controversies are always about the present. So while Captive tells the story of how Rikers Island and the social order it represents came to be, it bears many lessons for those struggling against prisons and jails today. So thank you for coming on KiteLine yet again. To start, for those who aren't familiar with the jail system in New York City, what is Rikers Island? Rikers Island is actually a county jail. And because it's New York City, which is a massive city, it is a massive network of county jails stretched across a 440-acre island in the East River. I think it's very important to emphasize, uh, in a technical sense, Rikers is not a prison. And it's not a jail either. It's a bunch of jails right, that aren't connected to each other in any meaningful way. So the vast majority of people on Rikers are pretrial detainees. These are people who largely could not afford to make bail or else were denied bail, and that's a small percentage of them. Um, there's also facilities for uh, sentenced people. There's a, there's a women's facility that holds um, detainees and also sentenced female prisoners. And there's, um, there's a facility for sentenced men, which is where I went. It's really an amazing complex that we could only call a penal colony. You have to see it to believe it, really. It's this, it's this little island, and almost every you know, conceivable space of it is covered with some kind of carceral infrastructure, almost spilling into the water. 
like I said, it's connected to Queens uh, by a single bridge. And so part of what I tried to look at in the book was how this came to be. Because as a professor of so-called criminal justice, which are not two words that I would use together or ever with regards to America's punishment system, I think it's very important to denaturalize mass incarceration and the carceral facilities that we're stuck with today. Um, you know, most of us are open up our eyes into the world, um, you know, with no clue about anything and just immediately take at face value just about everything we encounter um, and just say that everything that exists has always been that way. And in fact, when you start to talk to people about uh, radical politics, when I talk to my students about uh, prison abolition, the response that you will almost always hear is like, yeah, those are great ideas, egghead. But things have always been this way. We've always had cops. We've always had prisons. And that's the way they're always going to be, right? Which is a perfectly logical response. But one problem is we actually haven't always had prisons. We haven't always had police. Um, and this, this unfortunate little sliver of land in the, in the East River hasn't always had jails on it, right? Um, and so that's where I really wanted to start with the project. One thing I was struck by while reading Captives was consistent misery of the conditions and the consistency of the, in the failure of uh, administration and city officials to reform them um, over the course of a 70-year period. And in fact, um, you say at the beginning of the book that Rikers started as a reform. Could you tell us about the early period of Rikers and what the penal facility was that it was a reaction to? So the early period of Rikers, it was actually really interesting to research because according to just about everything that I've ever read about Rikers, uh, the, the first uh, carceral facility opened there sometime in uh, between 1932 and 1935, depending on the source. And this is one of those very interesting historical questions, right? As soon as I started doing archival research, I realized that this was just wrong, that there had actually been carceral edifices, like jails, on Rikers since the late 19th century, and um, that there had actually been a 24-7 um, a penal colony functioning on Rikers Island since 1903. Mm -hmm. And the, the early history is actually really instructive. So when, when the city purchased Rikers, uh, in the 1880s, it was just a tiny little sliver of land, uh, 90 acres or so, surrounded by low-lying coastline. And the city wanted to build a, a prison there, what they called a prison at the time, because it, actually there was another notorious jail island, uh, Blackwell's Island, which is today known as Roosevelt Island, which was filled with these squalid, crumbling, you know, smallpox-infested jail facilities. There was a prison. There was a mental hospital. There was um, an almshouse. house. Uh, there was a there was a hospital for the the poor, right? Uh, and to Blackwell's Island was a great scandal, the same way that Rikers Island is today. And so the city actually built, uh, bought this um, this tiny little sliver of land with the express purpose of building up its shoreline. Um, and 
constructing a modern penitentiary on the on the, the soil. But the city government didn't want to pay for this. Over the course of the next 50 years, they devised a plan to use prison labor from Blackwell's Island, forced labor, um, to level off the terrain of Rikers, to fill it up with the city's garbage, actually, to um, use the excavation from the New York City subway system uh, mm-hmm. to level off this island and expand it from 90 to 440 acres, which is massive, a massive expansion. And interestingly enough, when I was there, we would go out to the yard and they would pat us down two or three times on our way out to the yard for any kind of sharp objects, because of course that would be a good place to settle you know, disputes. And then you get out to the yard and you're walking around in the gravel and there's broken glass all throughout the gravel because it's a landfill. And I I thought that was hilarious. But so throughout its history, Rikers Island was presented as a reform of a a squalid, decrepit, discredited jail facility. Blackwell's Island by the late 19th century had achieved such notoriety that the Blackwell's family, after whom it was named, uh, lobbied the city to change the name of the island. Um, They renamed it Welfare Island, which at the time wasn't a bad word. It's a really interesting history of how welfare became a bad word, given its definition. But so throughout these decades, uh, prisoners from Blackwell's were forced to labor on Rikers, to live on Rikers, and to build up this facility for the purposes of prison reform and creating a modern penitentiary that would rehabilitate prisoners um, and do all the rest of the stuff that you know we're, we hear today as if it's like a new idea. So the, the penitentiary opened in 1932. It was touted as this really ambitious project. Uh, the city got these famous penologists to lead up the Department of Correction and to oversee the prison. And it quickly fell into disuse. Uh, the, the money, there was no money available for all this ambitious programming that they had devised. It was very much an ordinary jail. And then World War II came along and it drained the city of the kind of what we would call surplus population, you know, um, working class people who usually wind up in these kinds of facilities. And so the, 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 the jail itself just became neglected. Now, at the end of World War II, there was a precipitous rise in rates of arrest and incarceration from the 1940, the mid-1940s you know, to the mid-1950s. And suddenly Rikers was packed uh, with prisoners and there, was no, there were no vestiges remaining of this rehabilitative programming that had animated the creation of Rikers, right? And like you say, this is, a, this is just a, a, um, a recurring theme throughout the entire history, right? Like, uh, you know, a couple of these do-gooder reformers get their hands on the Department of Correction. They're able to build these facilities that are supposed to solve the problems of the old facilities. And soon enough, they resemble the old facilities. And some new reformers come along and say, no, no, no. But we need to we need to replace these 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 nasty jails with with some good ones. And we have a great plan. We've worked it all out on paper. And so actually, this is where captive begins in the mid-1950s when the kind of the second or third generation of Rikers Island reformers come along and they decide we're really going to fix it up and this time it's going to work. The population on the island grew to double its limit after World War II. You describe the overcrowding by listing the capacity 
and then the actual number of incarcerated people per building. And so the book begins up close in this way during the post-war era. So we see how liberalism gives way to the rise of the carceral state. A central figure in this was the Commissioner of Correction of New York City from 1954 to 1966, and that's Anna Cross. There's now a building on Rikers named after her. So tell us, who was Anna Cross and what role did she play in Rikers' history? Anna Cross was a very fascinating character. She's the longest-running uh, Department of Correction Commissioner in New York City history, and she was, um, she was very much a product of the progressive era. Uh, you know, this was a time, you know, beginning in the late 19th century, when the professional administration, what, what they today call the professional managerial class, but this professional uh, strata of public administrators in urban planning, social work, public health, corrections, right, were carving out powerful niches for themselves in public administration precisely because the old kind of patronage-based political machines, the old corrupt political machines, you know, in New York, it was Tammany Hall, that's a really famous one, were simply unable to deal with the extensive problems of cities that had grown very quickly without very much public infrastructure at all, and were therefore prone to not just great epidemics of disease like smallpox, but also outright proletarian insurrection, as you saw throughout cities in Europe and the United States in the second half of the 19th century. In fact, when news of the Paris Commune reached New York City, the local ruling class had a meltdown. To this day, there are armories built in, um, in a lot of old New York neighborhoods. They look like castles, these massive armed uh, fortified buildings. And I didn't know what they were for the longest time. And when I was researching this book, I found out that the New York City ruling class had built these in the wake of the Paris Commune as bastions against proletarian insurrection. And then they'd actually, the children of the elite were, were, were drilling to do defense against insurrection. This was a historical moment that produced a new strata of professional social administrators who were geared towards pacifying working class people, making them docile making them, you know, good democratic citizens in a capitalist way, and generally transforming this kind of undisciplined aggregation of um, recent European immigrants, recently freed slaves, and other people who did not have a whole lot of experience working according to the, the clock, which is what uh, capitalism um, imposed on them, to turning these people into just good capitalist citizens, right? Who would be who would be exploited and would not complain about it, right? And so Anna Cross was very much a product of this era. Um, she became a lawyer in her teenage years in uh, the 19 teens. Um, she was a suffragist, she was what we would call call a progressive even by today's vernacular. She pioneered a number of these social courts, like the family court, juvenile court, in New York City. And this, these were good-hearted attempts to, much like today, um, divert people away from the overtly punitive, the punishment side of the punishment system, and to try and intervene in people's lives and make them see the wisdom of being law-abiding wage laborers and all the rest. So Cross was actually quite old when, when she uh, took over the Department of Correction. 
Uh, and she it represented almost a, a, another era. Um, she was she was very much flying the flag of the the progressive era, which culminated in in, uh, in FDR's New Deal. Cross's uh, ascension to the Department of Correction in New York was actually a part of what they called the New Deal for New York, which was an attempt in New York City to replicate in uh, on the city level what uh, the New Deal had done on the national level, which is to broker labor peace um, to create a, a docile and productive workforce that wasn't going to go on strike all the time, that wasn't going to have a revolution. And in exchange, they would be rewarded with um, a higher standard of living than what they had, what they had expected up to that point. Uh, and so Cross brought this attitude to the Department of Correction, and her intention was to replace the custodial guards, right? That's what they called them at the time. And it actually, it shows you how, how things have changed because nobody would make that distinction today. They're just, the, they're, the, they're the correction officers, right? That's what they do. But at the time, people like Cross made a distinction between custodial guards who simply oversee locking people in custody and what she wanted, which was social workers, basically, social workers behind bars who would help people overcome their alcoholism, drug addiction, that would help women understand that sex work was not a good life for them, right? That would just mold mold people into law-abiding working class people. And Cross believed that the problems that were manifesting themselves in the jails, specifically alcoholism, mental illness, and other symptoms of just ex extreme poverty and, and deprivation on the outside, Cross believed that these were individual pathological problems, right? that could be solved on the clinical level by intervening in the lives of individual people. I mean, this was, she was not a radical, right? So this, this is the, the old poverty as pathology canard. And so Cross endeavored to transform Rikers Island into a world-renowned site of progressive penology. That's what she really believed that in the year 2022, we would look to Rikers and say, look at this. This is the gold standard for, for how a, a jail facility should be run. And accordingly, she partnered with a number of educational institutions, New York University, the City University of New York, a number of nonprofits. Cross was very early in bringing nonprofits into the punishment system. And she planned to create on Rikers an institute for studying basically deviance and for for developing uh, penology with prisoners effectively as lab rats, which is a not not of course the way that she would have said it, but that's what it was. I found the plans for this thing, and key to this in Cross's mind was the city. In order in order to make this vision come true, the city needed newer and better jails because Cross would always say, "Well, of course the jails are terrible and they don't rehabilitate anybody and they're violent and they're dirty." But, but that's because we need new ones, right? And the most important part of this equation was creating on Rikers Island um, a bridge connecting the island to the land. Because up until 1966, Rikers was accessible only by ferry, and they could only transport so many people and supplies back and forth every day. And so it didn't really make a lot of sense uh, at that time to put a lot of prisoners on Rikers. And it doubly didn't make sense to put prisoners on Rikers who would have to be ferried back and forth every day to go to court, 
which if you know anything about Rikers today, the vast majority of the people who are on there are awaiting trial. And so they have to go through this hellish ordeal of waking up at four o'clock in the morning and going from one pen to another and then being transported by bus to the court. And then they sit in pens and pens and pens. And then by the time they get home, it can be midnight, right? I mean, it doesn't make any sense today, but it definitely didn't make sense back then because of the ferry system. So Cross created this bridge that connected Rikers to Queens. And in her mind, she was opening up this, this large, empty land mass to the possibility of progressive penal infrastructure. But when Cross departed, you know, that, that very same year, the, the city very quickly uh, dispensed with her ideas of what jails and prisons should be like. But what remained behind was the infrastructure. This has been KiteLine. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.